tonight. Great, great book. Um, Obadiah is, uh, is not a very long book, as, as you'll see as we go through it tonight. I'm hoping that, uh, that many of you have read it in preparation for tonight's message. Uh, if you're visiting with us tonight, what we're doing this year, beginning uh, this past January, going all the way through December of this year, is we are preaching Sunday morning and Sunday night, going through every book of the Bible. Some of the books of the Bible need more than one message. Some need actually several but what we're trying to do this year is, is to go through the entire Bible and to gain an appreciation and enjoyment out of reading the Word of God, but more than anything else, to hear the story that the Bible tells that leads us to Christ. And, and that's what we're going to be doing tonight as we think about Obadiah. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it is, it is no light thing to keep traveling back uh, in time in our imagination to think about the, 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 the utter destruction of, of a nation and primarily of a city. And, and yet, Father, as, as we are faithful and diligent in going to Your Word with eyes, Father, that we pray to see and ears to hear it, we are constantly reminded of, of, of the frail nature of our faith and how that is something that we should never take for granted, never be flippant or lackadaisical with, but to, to, but to cherish that relationship that You have called us into Your presence in order to be Your children, to always treasure it, for it to be our most precious treasure in this world our relationship with You, our, the reality of our presence in, in Your holiness, Father, even though we do not deserve it. And for the greatness of Your love and the greatness of Your compassion and mercy and grace to fill up all of the empty spots in our heart and soul in such a way that we desire nothing of this world, Father, except to bring You glory. To bring You glory. And so it's our prayer tonight, Father, that as we, we think about these ancient words out of Obadiah, that we will be blessed with eyes that see and ears to hear. And to cherish these words, Father, that, that were first birthed in your own heart before they were brought to us through your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world is full of bullies and violent criminals and merciless businessmen and oppressive nations. And, and people all over the world suffer because someone who has power, someone who has advantage, uses it against them. And it doesn't matter if you're a nation or if this is happening to you in a personal, individual way. When you end up on the receiving end of this kind of meanness, this kind of violence, you wish for a third party to step in and to stop it. I, I remember in a moment, uh, as a, a middle school seventh grader, when in that moment I recognized that I was about to be victimized by a couple of bullies, a couple of guys that were much taller than me, uh, walking down the hallway, there was an art display in one of those glass cabinets, 
uh, there that you find in middle schools and high schools, had stopped for a minute to look at it while I was passing to the next class, realized that these two really, really, really gigantic, monstrous ninth graders had walked up on either side of me, which at, the, at that time I, I didn't think it was all that, that weird. But the next thing I know, one of them is pushing me into the other guy. And the other guy is going, hey man, why are you trying to jump me for? Why are you touching me? And I said, like it really mattered, oh, I'm sorry. This guy over here pushed me into you. I was so naive. And the guy that pushed me into the other guy grabbed me by the lapels of my shirt, by, by, by my shirt with both hands, and he said, I didn't touch you, man. Are you calling me a liar? And it was at that moment that I could see in their eyes, and I think the realization of what was about to happen to me hit my eyes and my face, because I realized in that moment that I was about to get a whooping. And just about the time that they got me pressed into a corner, I felt the arms of somebody come around my neck from behind and drag me away. And all I could hear them say is, leave him alone, leave him alone. He's a cool guy, leave him alone, leave him alone. And I turned it around and it was a little seventh grader by the name of Walter. We called him Crip. Or I, I didn't call him Crip, I called him Walter. But his nickname was Crip because he was crippled in both feet and he walked with such a distinct limp that wherever he went, you could hear him going down that hallway. So pronounced was that limp. He was the least likely of saviors. He was the, the least likely of anybody that would be able to stand up successfully to kids twice our size and two years older than we were and, and to successfully pull me out of harm's way and keep me from getting a beating, this little crippled kid. Which now brings us to Obadiah. It's located, uh, in case you're wondering, between Amos on the left, Jonah on the right. It's a very short book. It's one chapter, 21 verses in all. The question that you ask when you go to a book like Obadiah or any of the, the, uh, the books of the Bible is, is why do we have this as a part of God's Word? Well, in terms of historical context, it's not dated in any specific way. There's no king that's dated to kind of give us an historical reference to know when this book is being written. Verses 10 through 14, though, point to a time right after the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C., at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And at the same time, it's addressed to Edom. Now, you'll remember Edom. Edom is a country, but Edom is also a people. In Genesis chapter 25, you have the birth of two boys, twin boys, to Isaac and Rebekah. One is red-headed and, and, and ruddy, and he likes to hunt in the field. His name is what? Esau, and he becomes Edom. His descendants become the people of Edom. And Jacob, who is his twin brother, who comes out, his name means a supplanter, comes out second, and he is the one who becomes the, the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. Esau is Edom. Jacob is Israel. And Israel and Edom are connected. They are people that are connected to each other. And yet Edom... Edom has done nothing to help Israel when Babylon came to destroy her. And where she had did nothing to relieve her, her distress and to relieve her misery at the end of the destruction that the Babylonians had brought on Israel and primarily on the city of Jerusalem after they left. On the contrary, Edom has taken advantage of Israel's destruction and is going to loot her as well. 
And so Edom is a bully. And Edom, in verse 10, God says, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, your brother Jacob, your people, you are going to be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, this, this incident in history where Edom has really treated her brother Jacob like this, it's found in other places in the Old Testament as well. One is in Ezekiel chapter 25, where we begin reading in verse 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because Edom took revenge on Judah and became very guilty by doing so, therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and kill both man and beast. I will lay waste... I will lay it to waste, and from Timon to Dedan they will fall by the sword. I will take vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and my wrath. They will know my vengeance, declares the Sovereign Lord. Even in the book of Lamentations, which is, you know, Jeremiah, after, after the Jerusalem has just been brought low, that the temple has been burned to the ground. The, the, the palace burned to the ground. The houses of all the noble people burned to the ground. Not one rock left on top of another when it comes to that wall. And Jeremiah is thinking about the judgment that has come on God's people at the hand of the Babylonians and by Nebuchadnezzar. Writes the book of Lamentations. And he's lamenting and weeping and mourning and fasting and crying his eyes out over the, the state of, of Jerusalem. But there at the very end of Lamentations in chapter 4, Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. In essence... Edom brought misery rather than relief to Israel in her distress. There is a, a very famous proverb that goes, Proverbs 16, verse 18, you know it, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The truth of this proverb is seen in Obadiah. In the first nine verses, God removes Edom's sources of security and pride. Now, when you read those verses, basically what you're finding is that there are four things that God is going to, to do to Edom to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to bring them low, to bring judgment upon them because of the merciless way that they treated their brother Judah. Obadiah addresses the people who, uh, and, he, and he's really at this time, he's speaking as, as much to, to, uh, to Edom as he is to Jerusalem, to the people who have been beaten down within an inch of their lives and then left to be mugged on the sidewalk. He's talking to, to Israel. And they're wondering, there's, you know, there's sort of this dominant hopelessness in the land. Not only have they been beaten down and, and left to be mugged, but, I mean, it, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse, and they don't even know if they've hit bottom yet. And so the question, is there any hope for a people who are destroyed and instead of being the recipients of mercy and compassion from the people around them are the recipients of further atrocity? It doesn't get much worse, at least historically speaking, for Israel in this moment, this moment in their history. They are the people of God. They are the people that have been brought into covenant with God, but they are a people right now 
at least personally and individually, practically speaking, do not have any hope of restoration. But Obadiah says that what has happened to, to Jerusalem in God's judgment is not to be bereft of hope. He says, number one, God will drag down what appeared to be Edom's impregnable uh, strongholds. Uh, how many of you have seen in National Geographic, or maybe you saw it in, um, I think it's the, uh, the Indiana Jones movie where they're searching for the Holy Grail. There's that big, gigantic rock, palace, or castle that they go into. That is uh, Petra, and Petra is considered to be a part of the ancient kingdom of Edom. And so they had these rock fortresses. They had, they had palaces that were carved straight out of rock. And in verses 2 through 4, God is saying that even though they have treated Israel, my people, this way and were ruthless and without mercy and without compassion in the way that they treated Israel in her downfall, the same is going to happen to them. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Not only that, Edom, who had made herself rich on Israel and who trusted in, in, in the greatness of her vineyards, Edom's riches would be ransacked. In verse 6, that how Esau, which is a reference to Edom, will be ransacked, his hidden treasures are going to be pillaged. And not only that, Edom's allies would betray them. In verse 7, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In other words, what you did to Israel is going to happen to you, Edom. And Edom's finally, number four, Edom's wisdom and strength is going to fall short. It is not going to carry the day. Verses 8 and 9. In that day will I not destroy the wise men of Edom. Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, you warriors, Taman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. What Obadiah is trying to do is to transform the thinking of Israel by showing that God will deal justly with Edom. And then number two, the, the reason all of this is going to come on Edom is that Edom should never have betrayed Judah. While Judah is judged for her faithlessness to God in 586 B.C. with the Babylonians coming after he had been prophesied and prophesied and prophesied and the prophets had come and warned and warned and warned, return to God, repent, turn your lives around, get rid of the high places, get rid of the idols, return to God and be faithful to Him only. The judgment came in 586, but God will not allow the injustice of Edom to escape. That dominant hopelessness that is a part of Judah's psychological makeup and spiritual makeup is in part due to Edom's taking advantage of her while she is down and out. And God says, because you did not show mercy and because you did not treat Edom as a neighbor, because you did not have mercy, because you looted instead, it's as if you participated in the violence of Babylon yourself. And so in verse 12, he says, You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. 
A brother should not gloat. And a brother should not boast. And a brother should not rejoice when family members lose everything. But then finally, Edom is not going to escape. Edom will not escape. But Judah will possess Zion in the future. Edom, the bully, will get what she deserves from God. The bully who beats up on the weaker will receive the same. In verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. And Israel will be restored. He says in verse 19 to the end of the book, The people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. The people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev, that is the desert. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. Now basically, that is the book of Obadiah. It's basically a judgment that is pronounced by this prophet against the people of Edom because they did not help Israel in her distress and in her misery and in her devastation, but instead gloated and took revenge upon Israel and, and, and sacked and looted and robbed and mugged Israel, only making the misery worse. And all of that had the effect of bringing Israel even lower and taking them to that point where, in faith, is there ever a return? Has it gotten so bad and things have become so burdensome and things have become so painful and the suffering so acute that because of Edom, there's not going to be the hope of a return. And yet there it is. Edom is going to be judged. And there is hope. Because what Obadiah is trying to say is that wherever there is God, there is always hope. Wherever God's presence is found, wherever people can recognize the presence of God in their life, wherever people recognize that God, as we saw this morning in Nehemiah, that God is the God of heaven, there's always hope. And the reason that's really important and why Obadiah uh, should speak to us even today, even though we're, you know, we're, we're 2,600 years removed from, from, from this, this devastation. And, you know, the book of Obadiah was probably written closer to, to 585 B.C. But why it speaks with such relevance to us is because we live in a world of bullies. And wherever you live, and there's always the danger of bullies, there also needs to be the hope. The hope that there will be one who is going to be able to rescue you. That regardless of what it is that the bully brings into your life, the pain, the, the misery, the, the injustice, whatever it is that that bully brings into your life, that there is always the hope that there's going to be this third party. There's going to be this one who's going to step in, maybe in the most unlikely of places and the most unlikely of people, to step in and to save you. You know, uh, in, in thinking about the pride of Edom, I can't help but think of this curious little passage over in the New Testament, First Timothy chapter 3. And Paul is, is writing to uh, a church in Ephesus. He's actually writing to Timothy, a young evangelist in Ephesus, who's, who's, who is taking care of that church. 
And he's, and he's encouraging Timothy. And part of that book is, Timothy, you know, don't be a coward. God has not given us a, a spirit of timidity, but He has given us His spirit of strength and of power. You know, and so do the work of, of an evangelist. And, and do this and to do that with the church and don't let anybody look down upon you. And about the middle of that book, the third chapter, sort of about verse 5, 6, 7, right in there, as he's talking about the kind of men that, that Timothy needs to be looking at inside of that church, there's this curious little passage about, about an elder not needing to be a young man. Because a young man, given that kind of responsibility and that kind of authority in the lives of, 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 of many people, can become conceited or become, can become arrogant or can become prideful and fall under the same judgment as whom? Of Satan. And we have a little bit of insight in that curious passage in a book that is about strength and about hope and about not being cowardly because of the strength of God and the power of God and the Spirit of God. You have that little tiny passage in there that helps us to see a little insight into what happened with Satan when he fell from heaven. That falling under the same judgment, the same condemnation as Satan because of conceit and pride and arrogance. That at one point, there was an angel in heaven that became so prideful that he tried to usurp the position of God. And the Bible is, 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 is rather vague and ambiguous on some of the details. But what we do know is that the Satan has become, the devil has become that bully, not just of the block and not just of the middle school hallways, but has become the bully of the universe. And, you know, there are times when, when we make ourselves quite miserable emotionally when we think about all of the things that we have done and the thoughts that we have thunk and all of the things that we have brought to bear not only in our lives but in the lives of other people. And, 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 we, and, we, and, we, and we know, we know that we are fallen. We know that because of Satan, sin has entered into our lives. And then there are times when we know that, that we, it seems like we are under attack by the devil himself. The temptations, the, the, the misery that comes into our own lives, the suffering where we are made to think, maybe, maybe God can't heal. Maybe God can't help. Maybe God can't strengthen. Maybe God can't lift my chin up so that I can see ahead. You know, the light at the end of the tunnel. And then that's when we remember that there was the most unexpected, the one that the prophet Isaiah would say, there was nothing about him that would attract us to him. There was nothing about his, his, his countenance or his appearance that would make us want to pay attention to him. But he is the one who came. He is the one who came and, and took the beating and, 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 and took the judgment. And, and, and the mocking and the torturing that was all destined for us because of our sin in order to defeat that bully and to be able to put his arms around our neck and to drag us out from Satan's clutches and out of the torment of judgment and out of condemnation into God's grace and to say, leave this one alone, leave this one alone, leave this one alone. I hate bullies. I really do. To think that somebody would take advantage of another person just it it just seems as 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 violent as we can get. 
that we would force our hand, our power, our will as punishment and torture on somebody else. And yet, they're a reality. A reality. But even at a more profound level, there is a, 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 a bully that <coughs> not only seeks our pain and our suffering, but our complete destruction. And it's that third party that we hope for that comes in the form of Jesus the Messiah who was willing to, to do whatever it took. To do whatever it took. Not only to, to drag us out of the clutches of that bully, but to instill in our heart the hope that that bully has always been defeated in our life. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And, and maybe you have found yourself uh, sort of in the crosshairs of, of the cosmic bully. Maybe you have found yourself, you know, uh, just seeming like you're under attack. There is one who gives you hope, and there is one who gives you, gives you strength, and there is one who is pulling you out of his clutches. And maybe you have never, you have never recognized that, that, that one, that Savior, that third party who has come to save you from the hands of that bully. You've never recognized Him as, as He should be recognized as the Lord and the Savior of your life. And if that describes you, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front. We'd love to introduce Him to you. Because nobody wants to see a bully get his way. Especially God's people. If that describes you tonight, come down and talk to the shepherds as Jeff leads us in this song. Let's stand and sing together. I could not pay. I 